Okay, so to our second of our three guests tonight, um, Harriet Mansfield is brave and wry and handsome in her way. She's also six foot one and has unmanageable red hair. Um, and she's determined to triumph no matter what. With a decade of therapy under her belt and a new large inheritance, Harriet decides to open a school for precocious little girls, rich in everything but care. All the while, though, it seems that she is trying to be somebody else. She's trying very hard to create the perfect childhood. This book was described as brilliant but mad by The Independent on Sunday. Here to read from her fifth novel, The Small Hours, is the wonderful Susie Boyd. about um, how we bear the things we can't bear in life. How very lovely Harvest Festival Harriet rallied at dawn on Sunday morning, rising from a 15-hour sleep, her head clouded and thick, as though a bucket of silt had been poured between her jaw and her scalp. That was three sleeping pills for you. She ought not to take them, but what was she meant to do? She made an elaborate kedgery, and then still eggy, still ricey and fishy, she plundered the park for decorations. The light was dazzling and the thin rain on her face was fresh and clean. A flurry of autumn leaves blew towards her and nested in her hair. Pride was red in her cheeks. Pride was caked in muddy clumps to her skirts as she filled her arms with fallen crackling branches and acorns and glossy conkers and green and yellow and red-brown foliage. She walked her cargo home, carrying the large portions of old tree across herself, as though it was a hero in her arms. Then, in the school basement kitchen, working egg yolks into sugar and powdered almonds and almond essence, Harriet produced, without a hint of sweat, six pounds of soft almond paste. She set about the bold manufacture of several hundred subtly tinted miniature marzipan fruits to fill a small basket for each of her girls. She painted quick brown lines down curved bodies of bananas. She inserted cloves into blushing strawberries clefts. She drew white streaks on limes and lemons to show exactly where they might hit the light. God is in the detail, she thought vaguely. Or is it the devil? Anyway, her produce grew by gradual degrees. Her sugar fruit factory flourished. Hours passed and her arms grew tired, but she was happyish in the knowledge that she was gainfully employed on behalf of the next generation, although Killing Time with Confectionery was not a book she would write any time soon. Seven hours into this process, the pleasing artistic endeavour betrayed her, revealing itself to be little more than heavy drudgery. Her marzipan headache, like the sort that came with eating ice cream too fast, <coughs> mocked her and her wrists, which were, tarred with feathered, which were tarred and feathered with egg yolk, sent a fluorescent stinging rash up her arms. She laboured against the clock. Almond poisoning, it would say on the coroner's report. <laughs> At two o'clock on Monday morning, Harriet was still knee-deep in marzipan. I have been doing this for 11 hours, she cursed. She was so tired, she was seeing withered yellow threads in the air. She had staying power, certainly, but where had all the pleasure gone? She took a swig from a pint mug of cold coffee. 
The playing room was now decked out in sheaves of corn and massive branches studded with birds' nests and garlands of fruit and flowers. The mantelpieces were decorated with gourds and squash, blackberry briars from the garden and the last of the old white roses cluttered in jam jars. Piles of ripe apples, red and pale gold, and pine cones and horse chestnuts were intertwined with ivy. If you go in for that sort of thing, she sniffed. How could she have known that if the fruits were to look realistic, each small basket would take her be- the best part of an hour? She would be finished by 8.15 in the morning if she didn't go to bed at all, just in time to wash and breakfast before the girls arrived on Monday morning. Harvest Cunting Festival. <laughs> she spoke the words out evenly. You couldn't make it up. Then, why is no one ever helping me? She cried into the sugary air. Her aloneness dismayed her, although being brave, she barred such thoughts. She had almost had a daughter for a spell. She was the teenage child of the man Harriet still half-loved. Jim, he was called the man, Jim Rathbone Jones. If Daisy were here, this task would be funny. She was very dark. They could have rolled their eyes together. Who's the nut in charge of this evil occupational therapy wing? Not that she and Daisy had been exactly thick. For Daisy's father, Harriet had transformed herself completely. As an automatic romantic courtesy, she laced herself in, pruned herself back. She sanded down her sharper attitudes. And she did other things, appearing before him shoeless in the main as he was four and a half inches shorter than she was, and he was sore about it. Please don't mind, Harriet conjoled. It's charming, it's lucky. I don't know, like realizing halfway through the day that your jersey's inside out. In his company, the acute, relentless thoughts, the aches, the ancient, mindless games of blame and grief simply fell away. He felt such warmth towards her, she went days in a row immune to her family. Even the pavements, the paving stones themselves that could seem so harsh and cold and sardonic when she walked on them, behaved when Jim was with her. She had pictured them occasionally in a strange, conditional future tense, naked with emotion at the altar of a church. She saw a house with a green dresser. She was softened and lightly smiling almost always then, (coughs) cultivating a sort of quiet stillness in herself, which she believed he found feminine in the extreme. She rather liked it herself. It was the plainest form of fancy dress, the shepherdess or the kitchen maid. When they rose from his bed, she took care to smooth the ecstatic disarray of her hair. She dropped no rapid, nervous remarks. Instead, she spoke carefully, He hated it when people exaggerated. It seemed to him the lowest kind of lie. The things that he minded. But everything about me is exaggerated and overblown, she whispered into the pillow as he slept. I'm a sort of caricature, she confided to the damp and powdery linen which cushioned his beautiful king shrimp ear. I'm big, I'm garish, I'm avert. When I'm in a car with people, they wind their windows down to let a bit of me out. (laughs) why have you picked the wrongest possible type yeah he didn't seem to notice what was wrong with her or if he did he didn't mind he bought her presents all the time inspired ones arriving at her door one evening bearing a large lead window box ready planted with a herb garden a gigantic striped scarf the very week the weather turned and then on her birthday a tiny emerald set in seed pearls on a delicate gold chain she had been four years without sex So in their erotic life, she allowed herself to be a vehement gymnast when it was dark. Perhaps I can't help it, she thought, for who knew how long the romance might last? They eked out each night with sleep paying little or no part. The man even remarked upon it, 
You're very different, he said thoughtfully, in the night from in the day. That's not a criticism, by the way. In, my, in fact, you may take it as a compliment. We're a huge success, Harriet thought. Daisy, the daughter at boarding school, was nearly 15. One Sunday, they drove down to Sussex together and took her out for tea. The waitresses wore floor-length white aprons over green gowns, and the countless pair of antique sugar tongs mounted on the walls looked like instruments of torture. Daisy was sullen and uncommunicative, shredding, then crushing in her fist a series of innocent doilies. They all watched themselves inverted in the gleaming teapot's cheek. Jim, at a loss, took himself off to the gents. Daisy started to cry. She sobbed mascara and hide the blemish into Harriet's lilac silk blouse. Her frame was minuscule in Harriet's arms, but there was nothing childish about her crying. Between them now was a fierce bond of mucus and hot tears and stray bits of hair and raspberry pips and dribbles of saliva and crumbs and clotted cream and raisin pulp. Jim returned but hung back from the vivid women's scene. He nodded encouragingly at Harriet and busied himself at the side of the shop where a small display cabinet was filled with frail china. Afterwards, there was a stream of compliments that left Harriet shimmering. A few days later, Daisy arrived on Harriet's doorstep in the dead of night. She was very theatrical in her way. Please don't tell my father that I'm here. The school will be worried about you. They won't notice that I've gone. I must ring your father. He'll make me go back. Not if you tell him what the matter is. He won't understand. Could I tell you and you tell him? All right, but first I must ring and let him know you're safe. Harriet came back into the sitting room. First of all, I want to thank you for making my father so happy, Daisy said. And he is happy. Obviously, you don't know what he was like before you met, but he's a different man. Daisy spoke formally, but her voice, for all its coolness, was uncertain. Different in what way? After my mother died, he sank very low. He was drinking a lot, and I was very worried about him. They were very close, perhaps too close. It was, she cleared her throat, a storybook romance. My mother's illness destroyed her, but it destroyed him too. He had these awful night terrors. He'd wake up screaming like a mad person. He couldn't stop shaking. His face was completely out of control. It was like a fit. He'd take hours to recover. We went to the doctors about it. He didn't want to go, but I didn't know what else to try. And what did the doctor say? That it was kind of an extreme bereave react bereavement reaction. Then I came from home from school in the holidays, and there was all this white, transparent flakes of stuff everywhere. And I thought at first it was some kind of infestation, and I called the council about it. But then I just saw it was falling off his hands, falling on the ground from his neck and his arms. It was his skin. We went back to the doctor, and the doctor said he'd once heard of it happening before, the body experiencing such terrible grief that it literally started falling apart. Harriet sat back in her chair, assuming the posture of one who relaxed. He wasn't eating at all then. He lost so much weight he could fit into mum's jumpers, and she was really petite, you know, fine-boned like me. He wore them all the time, stopped washing, started to stink. He didn't want to wash her smell off him. I thought he was going to kill himself because he started giving a lot of his things away. I phoned the Samaritans when I had to go back to school and asked if they could ring him in the evenings, but they said it didn't work like that. He had to make the call. I threw all the paracetamol out of the medical box and hid the knives. It was pathetic, but that's all I could think of. 
My marks were terrible at school and the teachers came down on me like a ton of bricks. That was harsh of them, Harriet interjected. I know, but they said at these times it's just as possible to throw yourself into your work as to neglect it. And they thought I'd lose my whole identity if I started failing. And then there was this chemistry teacher at school who was really into me. Romantically, you mean? Well, I don't know about that, but we had sex a few times at night in the gym. He had a key. But that's appalling. It wasn't great. <laughs> Does your father know about this? No, and you promised you wouldn't tell him either. I haven't actually promised that. It's not true anyway. I made it up. Daisy, I think we should both get some sleep now and talk more in the morning. Will you promise me something then? Just one thing and then I'll go to bed. What's that? I want you to leave us alone. Go away, you mean? No, leave Dad and me. We're fine. We really don't need... Let's talk about this in the morning, shall we? Look, I've just lost my mother and I'm not going to lose my father as well. Well, well I don't know what to say. It's, it's very serious for me. It's a sort of crisis falling in love, a good crisis, but a crisis nonetheless. I don't know if you can understand. It's not something I'm good at being loved by other people. Most people, especially those who know me best, don't actually like me. She laughed, but the sound she made was ugly. My family and so on. I don't know how to explain exactly, but it's an enormous life event for me falling in love with your father. It's sort of an epiphany. Another um, character who it would be difficult to love um, in some senses. And when she says that her, the people who are close to her don't actually like her, that's very, it's very difficult to accept that truth. And I wonder if that was painful to write. It, it was certainly painful to read then. I, 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 um, very early on in the book, she says in passing to someone that my, my family don't particularly like me. And when, when I wrote that line, it somehow was a big sort of key opening things up. Um, as a it reminded me lots of Elizabeth Taylor when I was reading the book. There's a lot of delicacy, sort of the making of those little sculptures, which then becomes a huge torture. It should be delicate and lovely and dainty and nice, and then it becomes an, a marzipan all-nighter. There's a um, funny moment in the book when the children actually do see the marzipan. They're unbelievably overwhelmed and made happy by it, and then she starts thinking, oh, maybe it was worth it, or it's sort of complicated, isn't it, the it is effort? It is. I mean, she tries... That's the thing. Effort is a really good one. She tries really, really, really hard all the way through the book to be happy um, and to give these children the most kind of Mary Poppins style... Almost, It's a bit twisted, the level of perfection that she's aiming for, I think. Mm. Why does she try so hard? I think she thinks um, you cannot do too much to celebrate and um, help and love a human child that all human children are worthy of the very, very best of the very best of what we've got to offer. And that's because she perhaps has not had that. I think it's partly that, yeah. And let's talk a little bit about, a bit more about, about her background, because you reveal it in very small moments in the book, um, which are unexpected and quite paralyzing when they happen. I mean, the character of Harriet was a tiny bit inspired by Henry James's sister Alice, who had a probably almost as much intellectual capacity as his, but as he did, but was very ill a lot of her life, and also because of the the options available to women at that time, never kind of had a sort of proper vehicle in which to sort of flourish. And 
in her diary, she describes herself as being both doctor, nurse, and straitjacket to herself, and that 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 phrase was sort of part of part of Harriet. I mean, she she has a very weird relationship also in the book with her therapist, and I think that would be an interesting one to talk about. Um, how did you how did you construct that? Which character came first? Um, and because the therapist is very much involved at the beginning and very much involved at, at the end. Well, I had the idea that a good therapist should maybe be like the most perfect department store with everything anyone could possibly need, all very sort of neatly stacked and with low prices. And so <laughs> I had that image of the therapist before I sort of created her. I mean, some people find the therapist very withholding, and, but I, I sort of feel when at the beginning of the book, Harriet has her last session of therapy after seven or eight or nine years and they say sort of goodbye and Harriet feels even though she knows that she couldn't possibly she wishes she'd kind of seen her out of the door saying don't be a stranger or something like that yeah. so there's a sort of complicated um, relationship of her knowing the kind of things she can say and still hoping for the kind of things that she would never say. But, but uh, she's always hoping for things to be better and for relationships to be better but I think the interesting thing about the relationship with the therapist is that it has rules and it's governed by a, a context and mm. You know, I, I was thinking about my final session with, you know, with 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 the therapist. I remember at, at university where did you get a, the doors always open, Damien? No, I did. I, no, I did not get that. Um, uh, no, I, I, she 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 said at sort of ten minutes before the end of the session, "Is there anything that you've wanted to ask me?" And, and all I could think was, "Well, um, what's your favourite pop group?" No, 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 no. It, it was um, well. I heard that you live on this farm just off campus, and that your kids are like really unruly and have all got nets. Is that true? And she said no. And I said, and I heard that your husband breeds giant African land snails. Is that true? And she said, no. And I said, that time you saw me in Sainsbury's and I had a trolley full of booze, I was having a party. I just want you to know that. And she said, I believe you. That's lovely. It was very strange. And I was thinking, what, what should Harriet have... How, how could she have made that interaction better? Um, I'm not sure that she could have done. Um, but as, 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 as the great-granddaughter of, of Sigmund Freud, that had to have been something that you were thinking about, that therapeutic relationship that's very strategically deployed in the book. I think psychoanalysis is a sort of unrivaled method for understanding human behaviour, so that will always be part of how I see the world and how I react to it. So but I think about the context of the family and I think about her and, and, I, and the character of the brother and the mother. The mother in this book is, dread, <laughs> is dreadful. Um, she's a monster. Um, and obviously the father, the father is too, but we don't find out why until, until well, at different points. It's, it's very hard and it's also unreliable because it's from other people's perspective and we're not quite sure um, what's actually happening. But again, that was that thing of where I was thinking of nature and nurture and who's a product of, of what. And I wonder, did the family come to you and then, and Harriet became a product of that, or Harriet came to you and then you made up the family as the kind of backstory? I'm not really sure about that, but... Um I wanted to have a, um, I wanted to have a, a kind of very, very difficult mother. I have a good relationship with my mother, but I, w I was, um, I was interested in a in a difficult mother-daughter relationship, and I, I also um, met someone who had a friend who'd had a f um, been in a very mild car crash in her early twenties and had gone to uh, for an X-ray, and in the X-ray casualty, someone had asked her about her history of head injuries and she had no history of head injuries and the doctor sort of didn't accept that and he said well will you do it's and pointed it out to her on the screen and so that opened up an idea of something that this person had either completely forgotten or or 
possibly a mistake or so I was interested in this idea of something being revealed to you that was very 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 long buried but something was absolutely in the heart of your you know in the heart of your brain it was it, that was a terrifying moment in the book actually where she refuses to accept the truth of what's presented to her now I think it's a, the power of denial is incredible um, in this book what we don't want to confront um, but um, I wanted to ask you about the, the North London mummies because they're very interesting in this book, the mothers of the children at this school. Tell us a bit about them. Well, they're all a bit terrible, but when I was looking for a nursery school for my daughter, I went to one place and I asked one question to the headmistress. It wasn't anything approaching a criticism. I would, it was a sort of mild inquiry, and she turned to me and said, I don't want your daughter here unless you love me and you love my school. <laughs> and I thought... Wow, you know, this is, this is all getting rather fraught. And then she got out a letter from an old parent, a sort of testimonial saying how the school was so this, but it was also so that, and whilst being this, it was also, you know, and, and I saw that letter closely, and it was really yellow and old, maybe from <laughs> eight or 12 years ago. And I just sort of thought the absolute necessity she felt, that she, the degree to which she needed the approval of the parents... Um, and the whole thing of a nursery school being a kind of the be an idea that it could be the best possible family or somehow setting things up very well, of course that would make things... There's nothing much more fraught than someone trying to have the perfect family. And so once I'd sort of seen that that was part of nursery schools... Um, it's hard to believe that that's nursery school, that that kind yeah. of thing happens. Oh, it's it, not like uh, these are teenagers no, or young adults. No, it does, adults. because the parents are also going through separation anxiety and... Um, the, the school that I didn't choose was very fashionable and had a. It boasted that it had a paparazzi problem, which was a kind of. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> it was a rather sort of grazia boast. <laughs> and um, and there was a woman. There, there was a, in the book a woman wears a, sort of obscene jewellery. Um, but now I want to, yes, was she a re, was she based on a real mother? She wasn't, but I did once. I was once chatting to this woman who had this rather delicate what looked like diamond brooch on and when I looked at it very closely it was italic writing and I thought maybe it was her grandma's name or something and it said crack whore <laughs> 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 this, is, this is what passes for jewellery in Primrose Hill so um, that, that, was all, that was all a bit um, overwhelming shall I say um, I'm not going to reveal the ending but I will say that again in common with Lottie's book it is um, we, we learn a lot of, um, towards the end of the book and it's disturbing I'll take two questions Sylvia first, and then the cat. Hello. The question, the question, I guess, is about: Are there any aspects of you in, in, in that in that in Harriet? I guess. Um. I suppose Harriet's very, very good at rubbing everyone up the wrong way, which I'd like to think isn't a personal strength of mine. Um, I guess I, 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 um, I like the atmosphere around me to be sort of festive and lovely as, as much as possible, and that might be, you know, who knows why that is. So that's something we have in common. I've, I think I've got sort of high standards as well, but hurtling sounds a lot more energetic than I would describe myself as being. Cat? And as another six-foot-one redhead, although I'm sadly not gifted in the sugary arts, <laughs> I was just wondering how much her physical appearance is 
bound up in her mental state and all these problems she's got, or whether it was another sort of device to represent her as a sort of outsider. This is a, a question from the other, uh, from the six foot one redhead in the room, <laughs> um, who doesn't have sugary arts as a talent. Arts. Um, good S T there. Um, um, how much of her? The T S. Yes, thank you. Spelling. Um, and. To do, to do with her physical self, um, I guess, I suppose we're thinking about, is that a cause of how she is, or is that just a sort of another, how, is, how much is about that? Well, her physical presence is a big part of her because she feels that everyone um, sees her great height and sort of high colour as a physical boast, which she feels she hasn't ever decided that she wants to make. And so mm. I think she, she has this fantasy that her brother would like a kind of five-foot-four quiet, mousy, slender sister and she sort of often wants to be that person but I think she's also proud that she is that there are very, very strong things about her so it's, a, it's sort of at one point she says that her brother despised you know, everything about her from her large feet to her huge height and her radishy blotches or whatever she has and she feels like she wants to say to him but I mind them more than you could possibly ever do and I minded them first but at, but at other moments <coughs> I think she feels rather distinguished by such an appearance and she feels that it that it proves something a bit marvelous about her she kind of lo there's a grandeur and despair and she kind of goes between these two sorts of extremes she does. anyway i'm going to leave it there and say thank you susie boyd we're going to take a break we'll be back in 20 minutes <laughs>